Well, since 2002 or so, with the exception of about two years, there's been this show, this musical competition that has been running and running and running. First, it was on Fox for like 16, 18 years, and then it's moved over in the last few years. They brought it back to ABC, American Idol. Anybody watch this thing? Anybody still watch this thing? Right? I remember the first few years. I like music, but a few years and I was, I was kind of done. But I remember this show that came on, and you know, the interest, most interesting thing to me about American Idol, at least after a few years, weren't really the competition, even though it was great, and there were great singers. It was the auditions, right? That's where you got your popcorn out, and you had some fun watching the auditions. So people would come and auditions, thousands and thousands of people would come and auditions for this thing, and then there were like obvious people that they would highlight, the obvious people that were really uh, good at what they did, and you knew they were going to get through. But then there was this massive contrast between two groups of people. Uh, the first one was the person who thought they sang really well, maybe in the shower, maybe their grandma told them they sang well, or maybe their mom and dad encouraged them, and they came to the audition. The producers were genius because it was like, hey, this is hilarious. At least that was, I'm sorry, if, if that's rude, is that rude? Like, and I would sit there and watch them, and they would come in, and they would sing, and they would, Paula Abdul and Randy and Simon would cut them off at some point, and Simon would be mean, and Paula would be sweet, and Randy would just turn and go, hey, dog. Like, you can't sing, man. But the most interesting thing was, is the person's lack of self-awareness generally, but also, you know what would also often happen? The person would argue with. Like, no, I'm good at singing. And they would walk out feeling like, no, it doesn't matter what Paula Abdul says. Did you know that Paula Abdul, some of you younger people, actually sang? Like a long time ago? And then you had, so, so no self-awareness for all the world literally to see. And then you have the other person, maybe the person from the small town oftentimes that sang in their church choir it maybe performed a little bit, but like mom and dad told them they were good singers, usually young, and they would sing, and the judges were blown away. They got no stage performance experience, and they were blown away. And the response was grateful and humble, and if one of the judges, like Simon, said something, said, hey, you need to work on this, whether they got to the next round or not, they received it, high level of humility. And self-awareness, verse, no humility and no self-awareness. The text we come to this morning, y'all, is a contrast between the person who has no self-awareness but thinks they're really great before God, spiritually great before God. Everyone sees them in that way, and yet they are far from God to the humble person who knows their need. Turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 18, and we'll be in verses 9 through 14. We continue our series in the parables for a few more weeks. We're going to start Nehemiah here in uh, September, but we'll be a few more weeks in the parables. And we come to the parable where Jesus compares and contrasts the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that parable? And what we're going to see this morning is this incredible contrast between the lack of self-awareness of a Pharisee and the humility and awareness of the tax collector. But the central message is really more about how are we 
forgiven, accepted, made right before a holy God? Is it what we've been singing about this morning, what Christ brings, or is what we bring to the table? That's the contrast between these two people that Jesus is getting at in this parable. And remember we said that parables are like real-to-life stories that Jesus teaches his first century audience to make a spiritual point. And often that point is like in his audience he's kind of dropping a bomb, dropping a grenade. And oftentimes the parable has an incredibly both meaningful and sharp lesson like this parable does here. So we'll see the spiritual blindness that we find in this parable and for first century audience in the most unlikely place as they see it. And then we'll see the spiritual sight in the least likely place as a first century person that they could imagine. So Jesus drives home two critical gospel points, two points that really the world then missed and our world misses as well about what is it? What is it that God accepts? How are we made right with a holy God? How are we forgiven? Is it us or is it him? Two points that you and I can miss today as well, even as believers in Christ. Luke 18, 9 through 14, let me read it. God's word says this. So he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. So he's telling us who this parable is for. That they were righteous and he treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. How's that working? extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house away from the temple, justified, made right with God, rather than the other one. For everyone who exalts himself, lifts himself up, will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's take the Pharisee first in verses 9 through 12, and then we'll take the tax collector. Your first thought this morning is this, okay? If you're taking notes, if you've got your bulletin out in the back, your first thought is this about the Pharisee. Acceptance or right standing before God is not rooted in our moral or religious report card. Our acceptance or right standing before God is not rooted in our own moral or religious report card. That's the Pharisee, right? You know, we read the Gospels. If you've read the Gospels a few times, you know some really clear things like the Pharisee, religious leaders, Sadducees, scribes, they're bad, according to Jesus, right? You know that. It's 21st century as you read it. But let me tell you something, in the first century, Jesus' audience did not look 
at the Pharisee and the religious leader of the day in, in Israel as bad, as the hypocrite, as the legalist. They saw them as the best of the best, the best of the best. They wanted their children to grow up and be Pharisees and scribes and religious leaders. They saw that spiritually as the highest place and the best place that they could be. They saw it as favorable, as admirable. That's the context, unlike the way we read this passage. And here's the thing. Originally, you remember the, you get to the Old Testament, the end of Malachi, and the Old Testament ends with the people of God in a, in a place of a curse. And for about 400 years between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew, you have people forsaking the law of God, which they're supposed to be following, they're forsaking sacrifice to God. The people of God that should have been following him by doing that, they forsook that. And in the midst of that, what we call the intertestamental period, Pharisees rose up and said, we care about the worship of God in the temple. We care about the religious temperature of our country. We care about holiness, and so we are going to bring holiness and the worship of God back. We're going to make it vogue again. And so they began that, and they accomplished their task, but they did more than they should have accomplished. And so it was an effort, really, for people to worship God again when they had forsaken him. And it started in a good place, and yet we know in that time period, they saw the law as more than it was really meant to deliver. You ever look in a mirror? When you look in a mirror, what do you see? And most people would say, well, I see my blemishes, right? And the idea of the Old Testament law that God gave the people of Israel was like a mirror. It was meant to show the holiness of God and who he was. And when you looked in it, you go, I don't measure up. And so what I need is not to continue to look at the mirror, but what I need to do is confess to God and ask God to change me. So the purpose of the law was, New Testament says it was also like a tutor that brought you to Christ. But the law is good. The New Testament says the law is good, but it's meant to show you your need. Has anybody ever looked in the mirror and asked the mirror to change what you see? The mirror just reflects. It doesn't change you. That's the problem of the Pharisee in the first century and the religious leaders. They were asking the law to do what it could never do. And so instead of the law to the Pharisee being a mirror to point you to God and your need for God and confession and repentance and sacrifice, they saw the law not as a means to an end, but the end itself. They used it more like a measuring rod. And you know the thing about measuring rod, when you measure things, you go, hey, I'm holy, and here's the rod, here's the measuring rod. You know what you start doing with a measuring rod or resume? You start looking at other measuring rods and other people, and you start going, I measure up better than you do. I measure up better than you do. I'm higher than you are, so that means that I am holy, and I'm okay with God. I'm accepted by God. That was the problem. So when you look at this prayer that seems really arrogant, that's what's behind it. But do you see that the Pharisee doesn't see that? He's blind. He doesn't have a self-awareness of that at all. 
I mean, look at this prayer. There's a couple of things that I think you see in this Pharisee's prayer, and there's also a couple of things that are missing, aren't there, from this Pharisee's prayer. Look at it. The first thing that I think you see is missing is this. He's trusting in his moral report card, isn't he? I'm not, thank you, God, that I'm not like the person sitting over here in church. I'm not like the extortioner, the adulterer. My measuring rod is higher than them. It's a comparison righteousness. He's comparing himself with others. So there's this moral report card that he uses to thank God that he's not like. And then secondly, you see this like religious resume, don't you? Hey, I tithe from all that I get. The the requirement in the Old Testament law was that you tithe off what you produce, like what you made, like your salary. But he tithes off of everything. I give more than the other person. And it also says that he fasts twice a week. Dude was skinny, probably. He tithes fast twice a week. You know what the Old Testament requirement for Israel was once a year. That doesn't mean you, you can't do it more, y'all. I know everybody fasts all the time. It was, she's like, I'm an overachieving religious leader. Look at me. Twice a week, usually on Tuesday and Thursday, he would fast. So he's this overachiever. But he throws in some credit, doesn't he? He goes, basically he starts with, thank you God, right? So he does give God credit for how awesome he is, religiously and morally. You can kind of cut through this with a knife. But what's missing? A couple things. You see, what's missing? His need. He doesn't say anything about his need for God or his own sin at all. He's got it together, right? And he's not like all those other sinners. What's also missing? Any level of humility, just a little bit. There's no humility in this prayer. He has an inflated view of his own ego, like the bobble, big bobblehead. Five times he says, I. I am this. I am that. I am not this. I am not that, like them. So let me just try to apply this a little bit. This is like, I mean, parables often have extreme examples. You're like, well, I'm not like that, like that extent in my prayer life. But I want to ask you just a few questions here. And you may not have the level of spiritual lack of awareness or arrogance that this Pharisee did. That people, by the way, the people of his day would have seen these characteristics as admirable, not legalistic and hypocritical and boastful. So it's a radical thing that Jesus is doing and teaching this, that you don't get any credit with God. You're not accepted by God because of your resume. So let me ask you about your prayer life. Diagnostic, maybe, for the way that you pray. What is your prayer life dominated by? Is it dominated by, which is not wrong, prayers for people that are in a bad place, Prayers for people where their sin is obvious, that's not a bad thing. But do you ever ask God, forgive me for my sin, reveal in me my sin and my need for the Savior, my need 
for Christ to transform this area of my life? Are your prayers dominated by the prayers for others because they have problems and you don't? Are your prayers, when you pray with a group of people, you know, sometimes the prayer group becomes the gossip group, right? Let me tell you about so-and-so. We really need to pray for them. Or is it, are you ever willing, not that you have to do this with your whole church or all of your community group and everybody, but do, are you ever willing to share your struggles with somebody you trust and ask them to pray for you? Or is it always about somebody else and what they need? And last, one of the things about praying is that prayer is often, we make prayer transactional. I do this, 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 and this, so the implication is God's going to bless me. That's easy praying. That's like pagan prayers, though. It's a lot easier to pray that way, isn't it? It's transactional, but it's not relational. See, we often should And rightfully so, pray for things in our lives, but it's up to God. It's relational to God. God, I'm trusting you with this, this, and this. It's not a transactional thing. This guy's praying in a transactional way. There's nothing Christian about his prayer. There's nothing even Jewishly, the people of God, about his prayer that God honors. It's transactional about who he is and who he's not. And last There is, I mentioned it a minute ago, there's this kind of comparison righteousness. I'm guilty of it. You're guilty of it. When we look around the room and we look around and go, yeah, I've got it more together than the person next to me. Maybe you do. But is that the basis in your heart for how you see yourself before God? Is that the root of why you think you're good before God? Because I'm better than the next guy, spiritually. So I'm good. You see, comparison, righteousness, it's easy, isn't it? <laughs> it's easy, but it, it, like, it's also you've already, kind of, you've already kind of won when you compare, right? I mean, we compare in a lot of other ways, too. Like spouses, when we compare, we say, hey, you need to work on this. And instead of receiving that as a spouse, what what do we do? Well, you do (laughs) that. So we're never going to deal with the problem with each other. We do that with each other. Kids, you do it to your parents. We're like, I didn't, but she did this. We do it before God, too, when we compare ourselves to others. And what it actually does, it just keeps us content where we are. And it justifies oftentimes where we are with the Lord because somebody else is doing it worse. That's easy. But it doesn't deal with our biggest issues in our life, to be honest before God. So here's the thing. The Pharisee, Jesus is showing us what the gospel is not with the Pharisee. The gospel is not do good, therefore God will forgive me, accept me, and I'm right with God. The gospel is not do good and clean yourself up at least better than the next guy. And therefore, God is pleased with me, and I'm in right standing with God. That is not the gospel. Now, let me, I want you to hear this. It is right and good in your life as a believer in Christ it is right and good 
if you're a believer in Christ, to have fruit, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's fruit. It is right and good for you to attend church. It is right and good for you to give to your church, biblical. It is right and good for you to fast and pray and read your Bible. That's doing and that's good, but it's fruit. It's not root. You catch that? The basis of your acceptance before God is not your performance and what you do. But when you trust Christ and he makes you new and he makes you and declares you right before him, this passage says you're justified, then there is fruit. So don't hear me saying it doesn't matter. Hear me saying it's just not the root. So look at the contrast with the tax collector. Look at verse 13 and 14. So what's the vibe you think in Israel about tax collectors? Heroes? Best of the best? Not so much. Last week we talked about the Samaritan, right? And, and Chris did a great job with the good Samaritan. The Samaritans were looked down upon, as were the prostitutes and the least of these and those with the disease. But none of them were as low as the tax collector. Because the tax collector was viewed as a traitor in Israel because they were Jewish people under Roman oppression. Romans were taxing the Jews and oppressing the Jews, and tax collectors were usually Jewish, and they were the ones the Romans used to tax and oppress them. And not only that, the Romans let, this is where the tax collector really made his money, he really made his money with what he was able, with Rome's protection, to take on top of Rome's tax. So he's a traitor to the Jewish people. And that specific tax is usually what the Romans used to oppress the people of Israel more. And so they were considered the lowest of the low, the worst of these. That's the tax collector. So Jesus uses in his parable the most morally outcast person in Israel. Present day, that would be like a Bernie Madoff or a corrupt IRS person or a loan shark like Saul Goodman or a Ponzi schemer or somebody like that. And Jesus is creating this massive contrast with the way the people see the best of the best and the Pharisee and the least of the least and the worst of the worst with the tax collector. And look at the tax collector's prayer. Look at the contrast in the way he prays. They're both at the temple. They're both praying. The tax collector's prayer. Where is he at? He's in the outer courts. That's where the Gentiles hang out in, in the temple, even though he's likely a Jew. He's far off. He doesn't come near. He hangs out far away. And what is, what's the posture that he has? What does it say? It says his head is down when he's praying. Did you know the posture in the Old Testament? The posture of prayer in the Old Testament is actually standing, as the Pharisee was. And with open eyes, kids, Old Testament, <laughs> and looking up to heaven. His posture is very different, isn't it? It's looking down because he knows his guilt. And what else? It says he's beating his breast because he knows his guilt and his shame before God. And what does he pray? He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Is he showing us his resume, his moral resume? He, ain't ha- he didn't have one. His religious report card, he didn't have one. He knows his need. Your second thought today is this. Acceptance and right standing before God is rooted in God's mercy to repentant sinners. Do you see his posture and his prayer before God? It's not, hey, I'm better than the next guy. He knows he's not. Two things you see, I think. He needs God's mercy. You know, we talk about God's mercy, and it's true that God's mercy is not getting what we deserve from God. But this word for mercy, this word for mercy here is the idea of atonement. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And so what he's saying is this. I can't do this myself. I need God to make sacrifice. He's at the temple for my sin. He can do it. I can't. I need sacrifice to cover my sin. I can't do it. He's the guy that says, yeah, I'm the tax collector and I'm guilty as charged. I've done everything that you could say, Pharisee or anybody else, that I've done. I'm guilty. And it wasn't my mom and dad's fault for the way they raised me. It's mine. It wasn't the situations that created my problems. It's my problem. It wasn't the government or the Romans who forced me to do this. It's on me. That's repentance. When you own it with no excuse. He's owned his sin. He's saying, God, have mercy on me. And it also demonstrates that he believes God can, if he so chooses, forgive him and accept him and make him right. You see that? That's his prayer. Have mercy on me, the sinner. He knows his need and he trusts and he believes. He has a self-awareness of the gravity of his sin, does he not? That's how you approach God, y'all. That is how a person approaches God. That ought to be a Christian's testimony. I got nothing. Whether you're formerly religious and you had it all together and you realized that you'd gone to church for 20 years and you didn't know Jesus at all, you were just relying on all your own performance and your self-righteousness and your self-sufficiency and all the things you brought to God, or you're the tax collector. You're the guy out there that's sinning. You're the hedonist. Either way, it's a great picture of the good news. And understanding the good news isn't good until you understand how bad the bad news is. So what happens? That's a real question. Look at verse 13, 14. Which guy leaves the temple, see the word? Justified. Justified is the idea of being declared right before God. It's a legal term. It's like you're at the courtroom and the judge hears the case and he pronounced you innocent, even though you're guilty. He's been declared right. Who was declared right? Who was justified? This would be shocking to the first century audience that sees the professional religious pastor or leader as the one who doesn't leave the temple justified. That would shock the first century people. It doesn't us. 
And the tax collector, the lowest of the low, because he was repentant and he understood his sin and he cast himself on God to forgive him, he leaves justified. That would have blown their mind. Can I tell you, this is what we call, some of us here know theology, this is the doctrine of justification being declared right before God by faith alone. This is the picture. It's a great picture that Jesus paints. It oozes from this text that God is that gracious even to the tax collector, that he is that good, that he is that merciful. Aren't you glad? Titus chapter 3, I'm going to give you a different text where you see this. It's a great picture. Titus 3, 3 through 7 says this. Think about yourself. Think about the Pharisee and the tax collector in this. Who are you? For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, tax collector, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hated one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of works done in righteousness, Pharisee, but according to his own what? Mercy. This is what the tax collector asked for. He knew by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior and being justified, there it is, justified by my works, by what I bring to God, by my tithes, by my offerings, by my eloquent prayers. No, by grace that we might become heirs Adopted sons and daughters, according to the hope of eternal life. Is that the gospel that you know? Because that's the gospel of the Bible. One more thing. As a church, as believers in Jesus, see, the older sometimes we get in the faith at least, the longer we've been believers in Christ, we receive, we know we've received this kind of grace and mercy from God that the tax collector has received. And oh, by the way, the New Testament says there's some Pharisees that have received that kind of grace too. We know that. But sometimes the longer we're believers, we forget it. It's like we, we have amnesia about God's grace to other people. So here's a question. As a church, do we receive repentant sinners who need to be forgiven for much as a church? Are we willing to receive them, to let them come here, if especially if they're repentant? Do we, are we willing to receive the moral equivalent in our day of the tax collector into our church fellowship? Or do we kind of go, man, you, you kind of need to be on religious parole. Like, I'll be your re religious parole officer. And we'll go through a process of six months to a year, and you'll report back that you read the Bible enough, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this. Jesus doesn't do that to the tax collector. He leaves declared righteous, declared right before God. There's no parole. He's right before God. And you know what that produces in people? Fruit. <laughs> Moral fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Doing Root 
and fruit, right? So Jesus ends this parable really with just the summary statement, and it makes, I don't, there's not really a whole lot of explanation that you need. Verse 14, everyone who exalts himself, Pharisee, will be humble. The problem is, though, he's still blind. That Pharisee is still blind. But the one who humbles himself, the tax collector, he will be exalted. There's an old hymn. Maybe you know it. If you grew up in Baptist world, like Southern Baptist world, if you grew up Presbyterian, maybe old Methodist. I don't know about new Methodist. Sorry. A little dig. Maybe I need to confess. Sorry. That's hard. It, it's an old hymn, but it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't um, written by any of those denominations or people in those denominations. It was written by an Anglican minister named Augustus Toplady. While this guy was highly educated and religiously pious, he came to faith in Christ in this old country church under a pastor who was barely literate but shared the gospel and it wrecked his well-educated mind and his pious heart. And later he becomes a minister of the gospel. And he entitled this hymn not originally what it's entitled today. He entitled this hymn, The Prayer of the Most Sanctified Man Who Ever Lived. Why would he do that? He did that because it exemplifies how a maturing believer in Christ ought to pray and sing and understand his need or her need before God. That hymn got renamed. We're going to sing it in just a minute. We sang it last week, Rock of Ages. Anybody know it? Think about the words of this song. Rock of Ages, the cleft for me, pictures a rock between the cleft of a rock. Let me hide myself in thee. Why? Because I need covering. I need God's covering. Sounds like the tax collector, doesn't it? A couple more lines. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to the cross I cling. Pharisee needed to hear that, didn't he? Needed to believe that. See, that's not the song of the Pharisee in this text. The song of the Pharisee might go like this. The labor of my hands I bring, for it is my covering. But it certainly is the song of the tax collector. Is it your song as well? Your takeaway today is this. Listen, sinners can't save themselves, only God saves sinners. Only God saves sinners by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So here's the question. What are you trusting in? Is it the stained glass windows that you can't see through of religion? Or is it Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone? Is it your own labor that you bring in your hands? 
or is it the labor of Christ on a cross for you? And as a believer in Christ, many of you know Christ. What are you trusting in still might be the question. Is it the grace that Christ continues to offer you to mold you more and more into the image of Christ? Or is it your growing religious report card and resume? See, Christ saves you and he sanctifies you. Let me pray.